Hello and welcome to Let's Get Psyched, a program that explores the controversial and challenging issues from a psychological and psychiatric perspective, as well as the implications for clinical practice. I'm your host, psychologist, Dr. Aaron Parks of the University of California Riverside's Counseling and Psychological Services. And I'm joined by my co-host, child and adolescent psychiatrist, Dr. Toshi Yamaguchi. Hi, Tosha. Hi, everyone. And third year psychiatry resident, Dr. Alan Atkins. Hi, Alan. Hey. The views expressed. Where where did that come from? I was just trying to just trying to keep it varied. You're you're very relaxed. You're a very relaxed person. The views expressed on Let's Get Psyched are those of the speaker. They do not represent the University of California, UC Riverside's Counseling and Psychological Services, or UCR School of Medicine. On this episode of Let's Get Psyched, we're delighted to have as our guest Dr. Bandy X Lee. Now, uh, Dr. Lee, if you haven't kept up with the headlines, uh, has spoken out about uh, Donald Trump, about what she has seen, and she's organized some things. We're going to get to that. Uh, She released a book called The Dangerous Case of Donald Trump, 37 Psychiatrists and Mental Health Experts Assess a President. She's a New York-based, New York City-based forensic psychiatrist and violence expert. She was chief resident at Harvard's Massachusetts General Hospital. She has a long list of achievements, including having taught at the Yale School of Medicine and Yale Law School. She served as a fellow of the National Institute of Mental Health. She's a specialist in public health approaches to violence prevention, who consulted with the World Health Organization and initiated reforms at New York's Rikers Island Correctional Facility. She has contributed to prison reform in the United States and around the world, and she's currently president of the World Mental Health Coalition. Dr. Lee, thank you for joining us on Let's Get Psyched. Thank you very much for having me. Well, I thought it would be important because uh, it's it's not sh- clear about how much maybe our listeners have followed this, but it's 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 fascinating. So I was wondering, would would you be okay, kind of describing some of the chronology, the the history of events, from when you decided to speak, what you what you saw, what did you do, and then the APA, the American Psychiatric Association's response to that. Yes, I did not think of myself as uh, anything other than an ordinary clinician and academic before the Donald Trump's election, but I was in the area of violence prevention and public health approaches to it. And when he was indeed elected, uh, I was inundated with phone calls, emails, um, messages uh, from the general public. Uh, In relation to just a couple years earlier, I had done a report on Rikers Island in New York City Uh, which led to the federal government coming in to investigate and leading to uh, reforms that people had initially thought impossible. And so uh, a lot of that was because the the members of the public had uh, taken up the issue. Um, So they were now contacting me as a violence expert about their concerns about the violence that was to come. And I had to think for a moment because it wasn't immediately evident to me. But then as soon as I thought about it, I I realized that if I had um, spoken up and acted on uh, my concerns about violence prevention for my entire nearly 20 year career, would I Uh, stand back at the face of perhaps the greatest risk of violence that was to come, which was what one would predict from this presidency. And having treated uh, about a thousand violent offenders throughout my career, 
um, it was not difficult for me to see that um, that Donald Trump was a dangerous personality and that personality combined with um, uh, the power of the U.S. presidency would lead to a very dangerous situation. When you started speaking out at, at that initial phase, did you get a lot of encouragement? Did you, uh, or did you get immediate blowback from colleagues or um, from officials? Well, uh, I had a colleague from Harvard, Judith Herman, uh, whom many may know. She's the author of a landmark book called Trauma and Recovery. And um, she had spoken up uh, after Donald Trump's election. And uh, she wrote a letter to President Obama, in fact, that the president-elect was showing too many signs of mental instability and that he should be examined. So I immediately contacted her. Uh, we hadn't been in touch for something like nine, 10 years. And I got back in touch and we decided to write letters to, at this point, Congress members because he was already president. And, um, and we tried to get signatures from our colleagues, and I was surprised to find out that many of my colleagues, while they agreed, in fact, there was a medical consensus as to the dangers of this presidency, but uh, no one was willing to put their name to a letter or to um, get on board. And so uh, I thought that a conference then would help break the ice, um, even though we do have a public health duty and we have been uh, told about this, taught uh, about this, such a situation where it involves the president of the United States is, is an unusual situation. So, um, so I thought that um, a conference would bring people together. And I was given the space of uh, the biggest auditorium at Yale's Medical School, uh, Harkness Auditorium, which seats almost 500 people, and only two dozen showed up. Um, when we asked around, uh, people had said they were afraid of the um, consequences of possibly uh, knowing that this was a litigious president, that they may be fighting for their licenses for the rest of their career, whether they were correct or not, um, or that they would be physically in danger from his supporters, that they or their families could be in danger. So everyone was assessing the dangers correctly, uh, that these things could be possible, and they have indeed happened to me. But uh, uh, not not the litigation, but of course I, uh, I have gotten um, uh, involved in litigation myself. But um, uh, this only made me more concerned. Uh, at the meeting were uh, Judith Herman, Robert J. Lifton, uh, James Gilligan, so incredibly well-reputed names as well as a member of the American Psychiatric Association Ethics Committee. And uh, so we wanted to make sure that we were clearly um, 
reasoning through the ethics of this and that it was important enough for us to speak up that we were actually, that we would be mandated to speak up based on our ethic, ethical understanding. And uh, so that's when we decided that we would publish a book. So based on the outcome of the conference was that both um, uh, that speaking up was ethical and that there was an issue to speak up about, that it, uh, the presidency posed enough of a danger to the public that we should speak up. Um, and that's what our book was based on, The Dangerous Case of Donald Trump, which um, at that point received more abstracts than we could uh, we could. Um, include. And uh, also, uh, Congress members were already getting in touch uh, soon after the conference. Uh, and uh, a publisher got in touch. So everything quickly fell into place. The book was published within five months and uh, became an unprecedented New York Times bestseller. In fact, uh, Macmillan is one of the big five publishers in the U.S., but they didn't. They were not ready for the demand that uh, they couldn't print enough books to uh, yeah. to to meet the demand, and so uh, books would run out within an hour or two from Amazon, from uh, wow. all the known uh, outlets, and people would we'd hear stories about people traveling across the state to find the only available copy in some obscure bookstore. And uh, so we were number four, and people said we could easily have been number one. This, to us, reflected public demand, that the public was hungry to hear from us, and we felt we felt good, of course, because we felt that this was a public service. In fact, we made sure it was that we would have no conflicts of interest and so donated all our revenues to public causes, uh, to the public good. And so we took none of the money and we benefited in no way politically because we were not, uh, none of us were politically uh, connected or politically um, engaged. Um, we were speaking up purely for, in our minds, for the public's uh, health and safety. So within three months, we were able to rise to the level of number one topic of national conversation. I, as editor, was invited to all the major news programs, cable and network. There was not a single major program I was not invited to. And, um, uh, and I had by that time met with Congress members and they surprisingly were counting on us to educate the public and bring the public on board. Uh, if we could do so based on medical matters, then they could act publicly because politically, uh, that is, uh, because as things were, uh, we were speaking mostly to Democrats. There were a few um, Republicans and re Republican aides we spoke to, but uh, those who were really encouraging us were Democrats. And we met uh, with almost, uh, with over 50 members at this point. And they were truly counting on us to be able to educate uh, the public in a nonpartisan way. Um, and, and that's when perhaps we had uh, developed 
too high a profile, even though I turned down most of the news shows that would air me for only five or 10 minutes at a time in order to keep the discussion more nuanced. Still, um, it seemed we were, it was a bit too much. Uh, and so within days, the American Psychiatric Association came out with a press release calling us unethical, armchair psychiatrists doing this for political reasons, using psychiatry as a political tool and for self-aggrandizing reasons. So those of you who are aware of how they were interpreting the Goldwater rule at this point, know they were violating the Goldwater rule in order to stop us and declare us unethical for violating uh, their version of the Goldwater rule. Yeah, yeah, speculating about psychological processes and motivations. And Well, yeah. the original Goldwater rule is said to be an affirmative obligation by members of the original committee. Uh, so what it says, in fact, is that we should improve the community and better public health by educating the public when asked about a public figure, but just not diagnose. And uh, the di that's how professional opinion was interpreted at the time of uh, incorporating this um, uh, this guideline um, that we could speak about every aspect except diagnosis. And the way that they changed the interpretation with the Trump presidency, so a couple months after inauguration, they put out uh, an opinion, an ethics committee opinion, that professional opinion does not mean diagnosis alone. It means any opinion of a professional and therefore any comment whatsoever on a public figure could not be aired, commented upon, unless we've done an examination and gotten consent to reveal that uh, comment. I didn't so, realize so it changed so, so recently. Do you know why it changed? Well, uh, essentially because a lot of mental health professionals were speaking up. I am not the first. In fact, there were dozens of mental health professionals speaking up since the campaign. Uh, so it was very apparent to a lot of mental health professionals. What I did was to bring the voices together uh, at a conference to discuss the ethics of speaking up. At that time, I did so because the American Psychiatric Association was not gathering our voices and, and presenting it in an organized form, that would be, that would have been very much in its uh, purview to do so. Uh, that is its societal function as an institution, but uh, rather it was suppressing some of the individual voices. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Let's Get Psyched on KUCR and we're interviewing Dr. Bandy X. Lee who has uh, published a book, The Dangerous Case of Donald Trump. And uh, Alan, you have a question for Dr. Lee. Thank you. I, I have many questions. Uh, this is a fascinating. I'm, I'm so excited to have you on. Um, I'm going to save some of my Goldwater-related questions because uh, for our audience, stay tuned. Our next episode is going to be <laughs> entirely about the Goldwater rule, and we will have the honor of having Dr. Lee on for that one as well. Um, I, I want to ask about... You said that when you um, had Harkness Hall at Yale, um, there was a, a person, I think, from APA's ethics committee there. And I wonder what was their role there? Were they kind of 
were they kind of spying? And then later they came down with this opinion because they saw what was coming. And when you mentioned that there was a medical consensus, what does that mean? Um, and was it, were you able to get a bipartisan consensus or were you shunned from people who were afraid of betraying their party? So um, thank you for those questions. Um, when I originally held the conference, it was actually in response to the March 2017 uh, APA Ethics Committee opinion. And so since several of my fellow colleagues were Ethics Committee members, it's a 12-member committee that issues opinions that are kept as opinions. They are not adopted as APA policy even. Uh, so they're just kept as opinions for thought. Uh, but this opinion was different in that it was aired with a press release and uh, multiple op-eds went out, uh, including by the president of the APA stating, you know, in more severe terms that the Goldwater rule means that to be an ethical psychiatrist, you cannot state anything about a public figure at all. And so it was buttressed from multiple directions. My holding the conference at all uh, was at the shock of the March 2017 opinion because it was nothing about what the science said. It even contradicted an authoritative article by Goldwater Rule scholars uh, just a few months prior. Um, and it also did not make logical sense. So I, um, I was originally organizing the conference with the School of Nursing and the School of Public Health around uh, multiple issues, including um, climate change, refugee uh, issues, and um, universal health care. All of these were going to be topics of discussion. But once the March 2017 opinion was issued, I told everyone, this is an emergency. We have to do one on the ethics of speaking about the president's mental state. And, um, uh, and uh, that's when the other schools fell away. The School of Medicine stayed on board, but I made it into a personal conference, not a School of Medicine conference in order not to subject people to uh, difficult discourse. So I, I took full responsibility, and that's partly why only a two dozen people showed up. Uh, and I invited my colleague uh, in the same division, who was a member of the Ethics Committee, to start the discourse, to state what the Ethics Committee opinion intended, and to uh, start with the APA's stance since we were interested in remaining ethical and to understand the ethics if we were uh, conceiving things incorrectly. So he opened the conference uh, and gave what the ethics committee stance was. And uh, we agreed with that, basically that uh, diagnoses were not to be made on the spot and uh, we do that in our common practice to form a differential diagnosis, but we don't state the diagnosis in public uh, about a public figure. And um, at that point it's um, uncertain. But the problem I have had was the new opinion 
of no comment unless you have interviewed the person and gotten authorization. Well, the most dangerous individuals are not going to give authorization. And uh, those are the persons we need to speak about based on uh, the concerns to public health. And um, uh, a diagnosis is irrelevant to danger to the public. How would what would be the best way, or how 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 can we explain Trump and the influence that he has? We've we've heard uh, things like cult cult leader, brainwashing, shared psychosis, uh, bullying. How do you how do you feel is the best way to explain Trump and the the, the draw and the influence that he has? Well, uh, what ended up happening is kind of our worst case scenario in that he was allowed to remain in power for the full four years. We were hoping that, and I believe Congress members were hoping that once we raised this issue with the public and the public was able to engage with professionals, then it would become clear that we had a consensus among ourselves, apart from just a handful. In fact, I can count in two or three fingers, those who I've encountered over time who state that Donald Trump was not not a mentally unstable person, not a mentally worrisome person. Um, And so so we had a very broad consensus. Uh, The the manifestations, the signs were clear. Uh, You as medically trained uh, professionals would know that when assessing danger, you don't need a full interview, you do not need a diagnosis, you make, in fact, that's where you make a spot decision. Uh, You triage the person, whether you need to contain them, whether they could, they need to be in in a locked room, or whether you can have them waiting in the waiting area, or if you um, need to uh, treat them right away. And uh, our assessment was that, you know, there were enough danger signs that um, a further evaluation is needed. And so um, in our minds, it was not a matter of diagnosis or the Goldwater rule. Uh, What we were concerned about was that the presidency would continue, he would not be contained, and the dangers would increase at all levels. And that's what we have seen. Yeah, is there amount of vindication? And you could look at it that way, where you all were vindicated. Basically, you mean came out early, and kind of warned people. Started a national discussion on this. It, it, do you feel vindicated? And a second question: Do you feel it was worth it, based on the amount of stress and strife and different kinds of things that have happened that's gone on? Well, and, and ostracization uh, from your career. Yes, I actually anticipated the worst. So in terms of my career, I don't think it's a very high price to pay considering the dangers. I was teaching law students who represent asylum seekers who have sought political asylum in the US after having undergone all kinds of atrocities, uh, persecution, even seeing their entire family killed before their eyes um, and imprisoned and raped, gang raped. So I, uh I consider myself considerably more privileged uh, having um, 
being a citizen of this country and um, the democracy having been as strong as it has been. But it was also very apparent to me what would happen if we allow uh, dangerous personalities to seize power such as we have. And I think the lack of experience on the part of Americans has also uh, been a detriment. Um, do I feel vindicated? Um, well, all along I had no doubts about my assessment. In fact, in the practice of medicine, we are required to err on the side of safety when uh, there is a potential danger to self, to others, or to, to the public. And so definitely there was even margin for error to be uh, included upon what we decided to do. And I would also note that I was not alone in this. There were 27 mental health professionals in the first book, but there were many more willing to speak up. And in fact, hundreds joined us right after the conference. And we formed the World Mental Health Coalition, which now has thousands of members. And uh, we have all decided to do something about this public danger. So every step of the way, the dangers unfolded according to our timeline, to the degree that we have anticipated. And so um, there, was, uh, there was no even time to wait for vindication. It was happening every step of the way. And then uh, the obvious things that people saw were the COVID pandemic, the mismanagement of it, leading to hundreds of thousands of excess deaths that were, did not have to happen. And then the January 6th insurrection that was a direct result of his incitement to violence, his uh, leading up to that through his uh, promulgating his big lie, what has come to be called the big lie, um, repeatedly and uh, urgently on the part of his supporters. And by that time, his... Um, his symptoms have spread in uh, a dynamic that I have been calling shared psychosis to emphasize the fact that certain mental symptoms are contagious and travel um, not through physical contact, but through emotional bonds and spread among a population just as they would spread within a family or within a couple relationship within gangs that I have observed in my career. Having worked in the public sector where patients often go untreated for long periods of time, you see that severe symptoms can actually transmit to healthy individuals uh, quite rapidly if they're in isolated settings or in uh, memberships such as in street gangs. I have a question about the future for you, Dr. Lee. So you're a teacher and I, I've just came out of residency myself and I was involved in the, um, the, you know, application committee. Um, what, what are your thoughts on medical schools and residency programs that are increasingly favoring applicants who participate in social justice causes? And do you have any thoughts on on, you know, is there something more that we can do in medical schools or residency programs that can help foster this interest? Yes, uh, one of the 
things I've been greatly encouraged by is uh, the movement on the part of students and trainees. And I would emphasize that all this is trainee driven as well as student driven, not initiated on the part of medical schools as much. So this growing awareness of the social determinants of health, of um, of uh, social ecological models that determine even individual health. All this has been driven by students. And I also got to teach a global health studies course for Yale College because the students demanded it. And I think this is very encouraging. And um, I believe it is very important on the part of medical schools and universities to support this movement. Do you feel uh, that you have something to say about President Joe Biden? Yes, I don't even need to use up the minute. Uh, of course, as you might imagine, I've been bombarded by questions asking about Joe Biden's mental uh, capacity. And I, I'm um, proud to say in my evaluation a year and a half ago, I said that, you know, I only speak about individuals who pose a threat to public health and safety. And Joe Biden does not. There are no signs of him that concern me. Um, which is not to say his mental state is perfect, but you do not have to be perfect to be fit, mentally fit and uh, capable of carrying out the, the job of the presidency. But that said, I still encourage all candidates uh, for presidency and vice presidency at least to undergo psychological screening, uh, the standard kind of screening that every military officer or goes through. Almost every um, uh, person who deals with life and death matters goes through in this country for, for any job. Uh, the fact that the commander-in-chief, uh, who has the entire state of um, uh, humanity in his um, control, um, uh, or the continuation or not of it, uh, should uh, be subject to such screening, and if not, uh, for mental health professionals to be able to speak about it once they are elected. And that's all the time we have for this edition of Let's Get Psyched. Today, we talked to and interviewed Dr. Bandy X. Lee, most recently author of Profile of a Nation, Trump's Mind, America's Soul. Thank you to our co-hosts, Drs. Toshi Yamaguchi, Alan Atkins. Thank you, Dr. Lee, for joining us on this edition of Let's Get Psyched. Thank you so much for having me. If you have comments, questions, suggestions for the show, you can write us at getpsychedonkucr at gmail.com. And you can listen to past episodes of Let's Get Psyched on your favorite streaming platform. If you like tonight's show, please follow us and post a review. This episode was recorded remotely in our homes. Our producer is Elliot Fong. I've been your host, psychologist Dr. Aaron Parks. Tune in next week for another edition of Let's Get Psyched. Let's get psyched.